Hello there, welcome to City Breaks London, episode 3, The City. I'm Marion Jones, welcoming you back to what is now our 8th series. Covered 7 cities already, some of them ones I got familiar with through my work as a language teacher. That would be Paris and Toulouse and Munich. Some that I've just always wanted to visit, like Florence and St Petersburg. And now for series 8, London. Much closer to home for me somewhere I've been to so many times over the years for work visits, for fun, more recently for research purposes. There's always a good excuse to go and visit London. At least there is when there isn't a global pandemic on, but we hope for better things sometime very soon. Anyway, the city. One square mile or so of territory which really punches above its weight when you consider that Greater London is some 600 square miles. Apologies to listeners in countries where you don't do miles. I'm afraid I'm very British in that respect. But that statistic does show you that it's a tiny, tiny proportion of the whole of London. And yet it's the place where it all began. The part on which so many of the great stories from British history took place. And yet today equally famous for a different reason as one of the world's financial powerhouses. And I'm hoping in today's episode to give some stories illustrating both of those things and to tempt you into taking some time to visit the city on your next trip to London. There's lots of competition, of course, from all the other wonderful things to see outside the city boundaries, but I do really think that the City of London is the place to start if you're trying to get to know the city, especially through its history, and that a day or two spent there is always going to be a day of interest, of culture, of entertainment. And let me start by saying that whenever you're in the City of London, you will always be able to tell just by looking at the signs which tell you what street you're in. Because on every single one in the City of London, you will see the same little sign. A silver dragon, that's the symbol of the City of London, and the red cross of St George, and the short sword of St Paul. Combined to make a little sign that says, you are in the City of London. And before you even get there, just by looking at a map, you can begin to get an indication of the history, just by looking at the road names. A good number of them, for example, refer to the city gates. They're long gone, but the names are still there. And you will see on your map Aldgate and Bishopsgate and Cripplegate for a start. You'd approach the City of London through Aldgate if you were coming from the east. If you were coming down from Norfolk, then it would be Bishopsgate. Not entirely sure which bishop it's named after, but anyway. And Cripplegate has an interesting history to it, because the legend is that Edmund the Martyr's body came through that gate and that for that reason it was seen as a place of healing, a place to which cripples would come believing that they would perhaps be cured of their afflictions. Then there's Aldersgate and Newgate and Ludgate, all of which you can see on a map. Newgate was actually built after some of the others, dates from the 1100s, and you may know the name, perhaps because you read it in Dickens somewhere, as being linked to a prison. The gates are in some ways rather strangely named, because in fact they weren't actually gates, they were, in each case, substantial buildings, usually straddling the road, so a lookout from which people could keep an eye on who was leaving and arriving in the city, and buildings which later, before they were demolished in the 18th century, were often repurposed. The other rather gory fact that people tend to know about the gates is that they used to be used as places to display the heads or the body parts of people who'd been executed, or hanged, drawn and quartered it being thought that the spectacle would remind everybody what had happened to those who transgressed, and serve as a warning, particularly to anybody thinking of meddling with the established order, and perhaps committing treason. 
The street names in the City of London are often very interesting, giving an indication of what happened in the streets when they were first built. So there's Bread Street, for example, and the famous Pudding Lane where the Great Fire of London broke out. Doesn't take much to imagine what happened originally in Poultry Street or Threadneedle Street or Ironmonger Lane. Near St Paul's there's Old Fish Street and, perhaps not quite so transparent, Friday Street, both of those being a reference to the fact that during Lent and on Fridays generally, no meat would be eaten, but only fish. Some of the road names are a bit harder to decipher. I read, for example, that Cloak Lane, C-L-O-A-K, was nothing to do with items of clothing. It's a corruption of the word cloaca, a Latin word, the term, in fact, which the Romans used for their sewers. And I also discovered why Hanging Sword Alley was called that. I could have had a guess, but I don't think I'd have got it right. So I read that often shop signs had to be pictorial because not everybody could read. And if you saw the hanging sword picture, you would know that that was probably the house of a fencing master. I found an excellent description of London in the Middle Ages in an essay called Life in the Medieval City by Sue Jackson, part of a collection of a really interesting book called London Stories, written by the guides of the London Walks Company, I do absolutely recommend them, by the way, if you'd like to tour a little bit of London on foot with somebody who knows it really well and has got lots of stories to tell you. Look up London Walks and have a look at their very extensive programme. Anyway, this essay, The Medieval City, has the following description in it, which gives quite a picture of what it would be like to be living in London in those days. Quote, Huddled together along the narrow streets and alleys of the city, were overhanging thatched houses and shops. Down the centre of the stinking, filthy lanes ran gutters, overrun with rats, into which everything, including human slops, was thrown. Cats, dogs, hogs and chickens wandered freely. Rubbish piled up, and some streets served as open sewers. The City of London in those days was filled mainly with houses, with shops and markets, and with lots of churches. If you're wondering what people did for entertainment, then I can tell you that when I looked that up, I discovered all sorts of things. Smithfield, which in those days was open space, was a place where football was played. Possibly not football we'd actually recognise as such today, but certainly a lot of people running about chasing after a bit of leather. And there were all kinds of other things on the list. Miracle plays, dog fights, tournaments and jousts. And most bizarrely, actually listed under things to do on your day off, was the idea of going to watch an execution. There might be a beheading on Tower Hill, there might be a hanging, drawing and quartering to be held at Smithfield, and for either of those events, people would flock along in large numbers. Perhaps the best known of the large-scale entertainments on offer was the annual three-day event known as St Bartholomew's Fair. So St Bartholomew's Priory was founded in 1123, And it was the friars themselves who came up with the idea of setting up a fair, which gradually grew into becoming London's biggest summer fair, was held every year for over 700 years. It was a cloth fair and attracted merchants from all over Europe. It would be held on or about the 24th of August, because that was the Feast of St Bartholomew. And we know that the entertainments must have been very rowdy and lively, because when it came to 1855, it was decided that really things had gone too far, it was too dangerous, and the fair would have to be closed down. Smithfield, week to week, was also the scene of a livestock market, which lasted a thousand years. 
turned eventually in the 20th century into London's main meat market, although that was closed and moved elsewhere. But it had been a formal cattle market to which people would bring cattle from all over southern England. It's said that having so many cattle in a confined space in the city made some of them so nervous that they would go stampeding off, even on occasions running into houses or shops. We know that in medieval times the City of London was a centre of trade and bartering and markets, and a reminder of that can be found in some of the road names. Cheap, C-H-E-A-P, was an Anglo-Saxon word for market, and it lives on today in the City of London in the places named Cheapside and East Cheap. Those were two of the main markets in the area, and there's also Cheap Street. Another main feature of life in medieval London was the existence of guilds. Groups of traders or craftsmen would band together with other people from their profession and form a society which had a number of purposes. Settling disputes between them, for example, the training of new and younger members, and a general sticking together of a group of like-minded people who all had the same aims. So the very first one that we know about, founded in 1155, was called the Worshipful Company of Weavers. And actually reading the names of many of the other guilds gives you a good idea about the sort of trades that were being practised in medieval London. So there were guilds for fishmongers and grocers, for example, and salters, reminding us that in the days before refrigeration, salt was very important if meat and fish were going to be preserved. There was the company of skinners, i.e. people who worked in the fur trade, There were wax chandlers and apothecaries and goldsmiths, fishmongers and tailors. Many of these guilds do still exist today, playing more of a charity role really. They raise money, they give out grants and scholarships. You may have heard of Merchant Tailors School, for example, a well-known London school which has its origins in the Merchant Tailors Guild. In the Middle Ages what they were doing was looking after each other, overseeing an apprenticeship scheme. So a master would take on a boy of about 14 for a seven-year apprenticeship. So in return for learning his craft or his trade, the boy would be fed and housed by the master. His clothes would be bought. I imagine he probably worked very long hours doing lots of the donkey work as well as picking up the skills. And if in the end he was approved, which was known as passing master, then he would gain the freedom to set up independently and also have the freedom of the city. There must have been lots and lots of young men who benefited greatly. I guess the masters benefited too. But it has to be said that the apprentices did also have quite a reputation for rowdiness. Something in fact picked up by Chaucer and written about in one of his stories, I think it was The Cook's Tale, where he writes a few lines about an apprentice living nearby who worked in what he called the victualling trade. So I'm guessing food and drink industry, as it would be called today. Chaucer seemed keen to stress that when the apprentices weren't working very hard, they were certainly playing very hard. So here are a few lines. Quote, At every wedding would he sing and hop, and he preferred the tavern to the shop. Whenever any pageant, goodbye his profession. He'd leap out of the shop to see the sight, and join the dance, and not come back that night. The open area known as Smithfield, was also the scene of one of the most famous events in the whole of English history, namely the climax of the Peasants' Revolt in 1381. They were revolting, how modern does this sound, about a change in the tax system. So they were used to being taxed per household, 
and the government, thinking they would raise more money, decided to introduce a poll tax, i.e. a tax per head of everyone living in a particular household, didn't actually lead to more revenue because people lost, in inverted commas, members of their household, so that they could pay less. The government retaliated by sending out people they called examiners, who had armed guards with them, to poke about in households and see who was cheating. This went down spectacularly badly, lots of uprisings, and then a major one when protesters from Essex and Kent set out on foot, came all the way to London, stopped off at the Tower en route into the city, where they dragged out the Archbishop and the King's Treasurer, both of whom they were blaming for their predicament, promptly beheaded them, and then processed their heads in triumph all the way to Westminster Abbey. And then their leader, one Watt Tyler, and the King, Richard II, who was actually only 14 at the time, met each other at Smithfield in a scene which has been recounted in probably every history book I've ever read. And the one I'm using today to tell the story briefly is Robert Lacey's Tales of English History. He describes Watt Tyler riding out from the crowd of rebels with a dagger in his hand and being met by King Richard. Tyler, undaunted, read out his list of demands, which included that, quote, there should be equality among all people. He thought serfdom should be abolished so that all men would be free. He wanted the church stripped of all its worldly goods, which he thought could be distributed among the people of the parish. A quite unlikely list of demands, really, just not the way anything worked in England of the late 14th century. And the description given by Robert Lacey makes it clear that his manners were none too hot either. Quote, According to one chronicler, Watt Tyler concluded his great speech by calling for a flagon of water, then rinsed his mouth in a very rude and disgusting fashion in Richard's face. According to another, he was tossing his dagger from hand to hand, as a child might play with it, and looked as though he might suddenly seize the opportunity to stab the king. Before such a terrible thing could happen, one of the royal bodyguards ran their sword through Tyler, who was taken by his followers to St Bartholomew's Hospital, but the mayor had him dragged out and beheaded. Tyler's followers set off back to where they'd come from, realising, I think, that it was a lost cause. And history tells us too that Richard, who had sort of implied he might be willing to listen, certainly while he was facing the mob, had in fact had no intention of sticking to his word. Using the words, Rustics you were, and rustics you are still. You will remain in bondage, not as before, but incomparably harsher. So there then, I hope I've given a flavour of what London was like, or more specifically, the City of London, in medieval times. So I'd like to leap forward to two years, 1665 and 1666, when everything changed, because of two events which everybody will have heard of, and which both centred on the City of London, and that would be the Plague, 1665, and the Great Fire of London, the following year. The earliest cases of the disease which came to be known as the Great Plague broke out in the spring of 1665, and as the summer got hotter, the death rate began to rise until, in September, the peak, it is said that in one week alone, over 7,000 Londoners died. Caused by fleas brought into the city on rats, it really was the most ghastly disease. Black patches would appear on the victim's skin, horrible inflamed glands in the groin known as buboes vomiting, swollen tongue, splitting headaches, a horrible death. And so the most extreme of measures had to be taken as soon as it was suspected. If plague appeared in a household, the house was sealed up, 
all the family members trapped inside, and everybody else was warned away by the painting of a red cross on the door, along with the words, Lord, have mercy on us. At night, carts would travel through the streets to the cry, bring out your dead, so that they could be put into the cart and taken away and thrown into plague pits. If you want to know more about London in this terrible time, I can recommend the reading A Journal of the Plague Year, written by Daniel Defoe in 1722. In one extract which I read, he describes a man following a cart along to the plague pit, knowing that his wife and several of his children were inside, and watching in agony as their bodies were thrown into the pit. Here's what Defoe writes next. Quote, I say, no sooner did he see the sight, but he cried out aloud, unable to contain himself. I could not hear what he said, but he went backward two or three steps and fell down in a swoon. The buriers ran to him and took him up, and in a little while he came to himself, and they led him away to the pie tavern over against the end of Houndstitch, where, it seems, the man was known, and where they took care of him. There are entries too in Samuel Pepys's diary about what London was like in those days. Quite early on, on April the 30th, in fact, he wrote, quote, Great fears of the sickness here in the city, it being said that two or three houses are already shut up. God preserve us all. He describes watching corpses being taken off for burial. He recounts that a number of his acquaintances die, including his own physician, and then, by the middle of August, he's writing up a will, in the hope that, quote, I shall be in a much better state of soul, I hope, if it should please the Lord to call me away this sickly time. I'm pretty sure we all listen to that with a little bit more insight than we would have had pre-Covid, pre-pandemic. And while I absolutely wouldn't put our experiences in the same bracket, I think we probably do pay a little bit more attention to those words and have just that little bit more understanding than we would have had otherwise. Unfortunately, although we can say that by the following year, 1666, the plague was wearing itself out, the troubles of Restoration Londoners were absolutely by no means over, because what fate had in store for them that year was the Great Fire. It began in a bakery in Pudding Lane. You can still see Pudding Lane today, just a few minutes' walk from St Paul's. And as I think I mentioned in the episode on St Paul's, the fire burned for fully four days and nights, and over 13,000 houses were destroyed, along with 44 of the lovely merchant guild houses, which were some of the city's finest buildings. Just to give some idea of the devastation that followed, here's an extract from the Diary of John Evelyn, written on the 4th of September, 1666. Quote, I went this morning on foot from Whitehall, as far as London Bridge, through the late Fleet Street, Ludgate Hill, by St Paul's, Cheapside, Exchange, Bishopsgate, Aldersgate, and out to Moorfields, thence through Cornhill, and, with extraordinary difficulty, clambering over mountains of yet smoking rubbish, and frequently mistaking where I was, the ground under my feet, so hot as made me not only sweat, but even burnt the soles of my shoes, and put me all over in sweat. Londoners had torn down some of their houses in a bid to stop the fire's progress. The king himself and his brother had both been out down by the river, throwing buckets of water around and trying to help in the attempt to salvage anything they could. But really, there wasn't that much that anyone could do, and the devastation was massive. As John Evelyn wrote later in the same diary extract, quote, In five or six miles traversing about, 
I did not see one load of timber unconsumed, nor many stones but what were calcined, white as snow, so as the people who now walked about the ruins appeared like men in some dismal desert, or rather in some great city laid waste by an impetuous and cruel enemy, to which was added the stench that came from some poor creature's bodies, beds, and other combustible goods. And a day or two later, just a very short one-line entry, written on the 7th of September, quote, I went again to the ruins, for it was now no longer a city. What was, however, incredible was the speed with which London set about organising the recovery. Here's Lisa Picard, author of Restoration England, writing about the massive rebuilding programme, which got underway almost immediately, led by and inspired by Christopher Wren. Quote, In less than ten years, the financiers, planners, architects, merchants, timber importers, brickmakers, builders, stonemasons, plumbers, carpenters and brickies created a new city. By 1677, they'd even found time to build the monument as a memorial to what had happened and a celebration that the rebuilding was more or less complete. You can visit the monument today and climb up the, I believe it's 311 steps, to survey all around you the city that had been rebuilt. The new city, which emerged at the end of the 17th century, didn't go back to its old ways. It seemed to emerge from the ashes anew, and began very quickly showing signs of what was going to turn the city into one of the world's major financial centres. For here, inside what we now call the Square Mile, began to emerge some of the financial institutions which were going to make London such a powerhouse in the centuries to come. And bizarrely, right at the heart of this story, was something quite unexpected, namely coffee. Someone who'd travelled to the eastern Mediterranean brought it back, tried it out on a few friends who liked it very much. Coffee houses began to open up, grow in number, and, as well as being places to meet and drink the stuff, they soon turned into places where you could meet and negotiate and do some business. It was as early as the 1680s when one Edward Lloyd opened his coffee house in Great Tower Street, which soon became a place where you would go if you wanted to discuss marine insurance. You may already have recognised the name, because that little coffee shop grew eventually into Lloyd's of London, perhaps the most famous insurance market in the whole world, and certainly one which put London right at the heart of the world insurance market. Ten years or so after that, the Bank of England was established in Threadneedle Street, and by the 19th century, in the reign of Queen Victoria, the Square Mile had become the powerhouse of the British Empire. Whatever you think about that, it remains true that it was here in the City of London that the trade was controlled and the wealth that was generated was managed. By the early 20th century, the city was a serious place of business, peopled by men in bowler hats and pinstriped suits. The place where the dad in Mary Poppins worked, if you've seen that film. And in the late 20th century, a building bonanza put some very imposing new buildings up around the city, starting perhaps with the Lloyds building itself, which I've seen described as a futuristic fairy tale castle. Futuristic because it's got its pipes on the outside and its lifts run up and down the outside of the building. Much talked about when it first went up, and in its wake came a whole lot more very modern buildings, which Londoners have a habit of renaming with a touch of irony. Take a guidebook with you and wander around today, and you can see the Gherkin, 
the cheese grater, the helter-skelter and the walkie-talkie. All of them representing a London where you can go from rags to riches, make your fortune, and nowhere is that better encapsulated than in the story of Dick Whittington and his cat. Much embroidered, I think, by the pantomime tradition and fairy stories, but based, nevertheless, on a historical figure, one Richard Whittington, who did indeed come to London and make his fortune. According to the legend, it was in the days of Edward III when Dick, a poor boy from the countryside, came to London, hoping to find the streets paved with gold. He started life in the kitchen of a wealthy merchant, where in desperation, because there were so many mice and rats infesting the place, he bought a cat, which was an excellent mouser, for which he sold so that he could buy some shares in a cargo of merchandise. Things went from bad to worse until Dick decided he'd better leave London, and he was just walking out of the city when he heard the chimes of the bells of Bow Church and fancied that he could hear them saying, Turn again, Whittington, thrice Lord Mayor of London. So, to cut a long story short, back to London he went. This and that went very well for him. He made a massive fortune, and yes, he ended up being mayor three times. There's no doubt that the idea of building up a city where much money could be made was very exciting to many people, including Joseph Addison, the writer who visited the Royal Exchange in 1711 and wrote a piece afterwards for The Spectator, a magazine, incidentally, still going today, in which he explained what the excitement was. It gives me a secret satisfaction, he wrote, to see so rich an assembly of countrymen and foreigners consulting together upon the private business of mankind and making this metropolis a kind of emporium for the whole earth. He summed up the trade as being bringing into the country whatever is wanting and carrying out of it whatever is superfluous. He liked to list all the wonderful things that could be brought into England on the ships. The harvest, as he put it, of every climate. Quote, Our tables are stored with spices and oils and wines. Our rooms are filled with pyramids of China and adorned with the workmanship of Japan. Our morning's draught comes to us from the remotest corners of the earth. Okay, so that does sound rather greedy and grabby, but in fact he also goes on to explain why he thought that all this trading brought lots of benefits for all sorts of people. The merchants, he said, quote, knit mankind together in a mutual intercourse of good offices, distribute the gifts of nature, find work for the poor, add wealth to the rich, and magnificence to the great. I imagine that when you listen to that, you have, as do I, a few yes-but-what-abouts running round your mind. I'll come on to some of those in a minute, but before I do, here's a less likely person, one Charlotte Bronte, in fact, writing in one of her novels, in Villette to be precise, about the same excitement. Quote, the city seems so much more in earnest. Its business, its rush, its roar are such serious things, sights and sounds. The city is getting its living, the West End, but enjoying its pleasure. At the West End, you may be amused, but in the city, you are deeply excited. A later writer, one T.S. Eliot, writing in 1922 in The Wasteland, touched on the idea that perhaps quite a lot was being sacrificed in all this rushing about and making money. He describes the workers pouring into London over the bridge in the morning, determined, yes, to do their best and make lots of money, but actually not really enjoying it. Here are just two lines from that poem. Quote, Sighs, short and infrequent, were exhaled, 
and each man fixed his eyes upon his feet. If you've crossed one of London's bridges early in the morning, you'll know that it can be a lovely sight, but these poor fellows didn't have time to enjoy it. They were just intent on getting to work before nine and getting started on the tasks of the day. Someone else who didn't think the city was 100% wonderful was one Victor Rothschild. You probably recognise the surname and know that it's from one of the biggest and most successful banking families ever. He started work in the city in 1931, aged only 21, just after he graduated, because family expectations meant that he was supposed to be a city banker. It wasn't a very auspicious moment. It was a world recession, in fact. So whether that was the reason, or whether it just wasn't for him, I'm not quite sure. But this is what he wrote about it. Quote, The city seemed moribund, boring, rather painful. I did not like banking, which consists essentially of facilitating the movement of money from point A, where it is, to point B, where it is needed. And then there's what's perhaps the best-known story in connection with how badly wrong things can go in the city, namely that of the South Sea Bubble. The year was 1720. The South Sea Company seemed to be doing extremely well. There was more and more of a rush to buy its shares. Prices rocketed. People wouldn't stop investing. A huge panic to buy was generated. And, of course, in the end, the bubble burst. Suddenly the stock was worth nothing, and many people, including many of the very wealthiest, fell almost instantly into ruin. Charles Mackay wrote an essay about this with the rather wonderful title of Extraordinary Popular Delusions, and in it he rather succinctly described just one example. One of them, he wrote, who, in the full-blown pride of an ignorant rich man, had said that he would feed his horse upon gold, was reduced almost to bread and water for himself. And he goes on to explain that, quote, the state of matters all over the country was so alarming that George I shortened his intended stay in Hanover and returned in all haste to England. I think it's fair to say that there was panic everywhere, public meetings, Parliament was recalled, people called out for new laws which would allow them to wreak vengeance on the directors of the South Sea Company. Their fraudulent practices, it was said, had brought the nation to the brink of ruin. But Charles Mackay ends his essay by saying that really he thought every gullible person was to blame. Human greed was to blame. And it reads to me like a warning against putting too much faith in the marvellous things that can be created by an institution like the City of London. So this is what he wrote. Quote, Nobody seemed to imagine that the nation itself was as culpable as the South Sea Company. Nobody blamed the credulity and avarice of the people the degrading lust of gain, which had swallowed up every nobler quality in the national character, or the infatuation which had made the multitude run their heads with such frantic eagerness into the net held out for them by scheming projectors. These things were never mentioned. And finally, in this rapid rush through the history of the City of London, I must mention the Blitz, an intense bombing campaign which began at about four o'clock on the afternoon of September the 7th, 1940. German planes appeared over London. 348 German bombers dropped high-explosive bombs, causing fires and devastation. On that one day, 430 people were killed, another 1,600 badly injured, and the day came to be known as Black Saturday. Every night, for 57 more days, the bombers reappeared. 
It was, in fact, the Docklands in the East End that took the weight of the bombs, but the City of London wasn't spared either. You might remember from the last episode the description of St Paul's standing proud on a loft amid the ruins, which had been caused by bombs falling all around it. Public air aid shelters were set up. More than two million households were given Anderson shelters, corrugated steel contraptions which you dug into your garden then covered up with dirt, somewhere to hide if the worst should happen. There was a blackout every night for the whole period. No street lights, no car lights, no illuminated signs. Blackout curtains in every house. Air raid sirens setting off every time a warning was needed. Quite a bit of the City of London did survive. A lot more of it was rebuilt afterwards. Something just to bear in mind when you wander around and look at it as it is today. OK then, and just to finish off the episode, I wanted to give a few pointers to things that you can go and look at today if you decide to walk around the City of London. So many things, so I'm going to have to summarise, but let's start with the churches. 12th century London had 126 parish churches, and today there are still scores of them. Many really architectural jewels that you might head towards because you've read about them, or that you might just pop into because you're passing. I think it's fair to say that whichever one you pop into, you won't be disappointed. Just to give an idea of how important churches have always been in the City of London, here's a quotation from Sue Jackson's essay on life in the medieval city, which comes from the London Stories book. She's writing about the fact that there were so many churches that many of them had similar names, often St Mary's. And she explains that they often had, quote, distinguishing suffixes. Sometimes this was the name of the church's benefactor. For example, St Martin Orgar or St Lawrence Pountney. St Margaret Patton refers to the raised iron shoes or patterns made in the adjacent lane to protect clothes from the mud. And St Mary Le Beau, in Cheapside, is named after the arched vaulting in the crypt. And it was the great tenor bell of that church that signalled the nine o'clock evening curfew when all citizens had to be back within the walls. True citizens of the city were those who lived within the sound of bow bells. If you're wondering where to start, let me just mention three or four. There's St Stephen's for a start. So beautiful that when one Lord Burlington went on a grand tour of Italy in the 19th century, he was met unexpectedly by someone who said to him, To think you have come all this way, yet you have the most beautiful building in the world in London. And that was St Stephen's Church in the city. Then there's St Bartholomew's, the oldest parish church in the city, with vast Norman columns, arches. They remain, although the actual nave has disappeared. Then there's St Lawrence Jewry, so named because it was built in the area which had been set aside in the 13th century for Jews. That, in fact, was the beginning of the persecution against them, which led to them being expelled altogether in the year 1291. But it's a beautiful little church, built originally in 1136 and rebuilt by Sir Christopher Wren in the 1670s, so after the fire. I've already mentioned St Mary Le Beau, which has on its website the catchline 1,000 Years of History. It was first built in the year 1080, under the supervision of William the Conqueror, rebuilt by Christopher Wren after you-know-what, almost completely destroyed again in 1941, and then the fourth version put up finally in 1964. And the last one I'd mention is St Dunstan's in the East. 
I've seen references to that in quite a lot of the books that I've read. People citing it as one of their favourite spots to just sit and reflect anywhere in the City of London. And it's rather odd because in fact the church itself is virtually no longer there. Originally built in the 12th century, it was destroyed in the Great Fire, destroyed again in the Blitz. And in this case, instead of rebuilding it, it was decided to leave its shell and the space around it just as somewhere to become a public park, somewhere to sit, somewhere quiet and peaceful in the middle of the city. Some of the archways and cloisters are still there, as are some of the trees, which somehow escaped the various disasters and have grown to full maturity. I hope you're picking up the idea that all of the churches are individual, all a little different, many with stories to tell, and definitely worth a visit. And then I'm going to mention four City of London institutions which you can visit today. Let's take them in chronological order and start then with the Guildhall, built in 1411. The city's only surviving secular medieval building. It's been the administrative centre, if you will, for the City of London Corporation for over 800 years. It gets its name from the word Geld, which means money, because it was originally the place where taxes were collected. It's still in use for various purposes. For example, every fourth Thursday at one o'clock, the Court of Common Council meet there, presided over by the Lord Mayor of London, who still wears his velvet robes and his chain of office. It's used too for grand events. It is, for example, the place where the Booker Prize is awarded every year and the public are allowed to visit. There are free guided tours every month or so. You can check out when by looking at their website. And if you do go in, not only will you learn more about what happens there, but you'll be able to see the gorgeous 27 metre high ceilings and the hundred or more coats of arms from the various ancient livery companies which still decorate the walls. Moving on in time then to 1566, that was when London's first purpose-built centre was opened for trading stocks, known as the Royal Exchange. Officially opened by Queen Elizabeth I, no less. Twice destroyed by fire in 1666, of course, and again in 1838. So the one you're looking at today is in fact the third incarnation, this one opened by Queen Victoria in 1844. It was used for its intended purpose right up until World War II, after which it fell into disuse. But in 2001, it was made a Grade 1 listed building, it was extensively remodelled and transformed into a luxury shopping and dining emporium. So you can pop in if you wish to buy something very expensive, or eat something rather expensive, or indeed, just have a look round. You will find such exclusive places as the Royal Exchange Grand Café and Fortnum's Bar and Restaurant. You can shop at Tiffany's or Hermes, or you can just wander around and enjoy the splendid building and the very lovely artwork. Inside, you will find a sequence of 24 scenes from London's history, up on the first floor, in fact, which were painted in 1892, and will show you scenes like Alfred the Great repairing the walls of the City of London, or Sir Richard Whittington, no less, dispensing charity, this being of course after he made his enormous pile of wealth, dispensing charity to Londoners. A bit more than a century later, in 1694, was founded the Bank of England, and you can visit that today because there is a museum attached where you can learn all about it. Find out, for example, that when the bank first opened, 
It had 19 members of staff, but by 1720, so only 25 or so years later, there were nearly a 100. You can see examples of some of the first banknotes which were entirely written by hand. You can learn about how printing of banknotes began in the 1720s, although at that point the details still had to be filled out by hand. There are in total 40,000 items to look at, spanning 1,500 years of history, showing you, yes, coins and banknotes, but also artworks and sculptures and a whole lot of information on social history. I found a comment by somebody who'd enjoyed their visit on, I think it was TripAdvisor, where the person had written, I found it most interesting to discover how banknotes have been printed over the centuries to avoid forgery, and how leading figures from England's history feature on our banknotes. There's even a real gold bar inside a secure box that you can try to lift to see how heavy it is. I could barely lift it. So there's an idea for an interesting hour or two. And fourthly then, I wanted to mention the Mansion House, built in 1752. It's where the Lord Mayor of London is based. His post actually dates much further back than that, to 1189 in fact, but this is his official residence, built in the 18th century and described in one of the books I read as one of the grandest surviving Georgian palaces in London. The Lord Mayor of London, as you may know, is the ambassador for London's financial centre, so what takes place in this building is all sorts of business meetings and civic meetings and conferences. It's pretty glam, so it's also used for fundraising events and receptions and dinners. You might, for example, find that a cabinet minister decides to give a speech there if he or she wants a particularly glamorous setting for something very important. It's where visiting heads of government are sometimes hosted. And you too can get inside because every Tuesday, according to their website at least, there is a guided tour. So there we have it, the City of London. I think this is actually the longest City Breaks episode there has been to date, and yet I'm still aware that there's so much more I could have said. Perhaps I should have split it into two. Oh well. I hope you feel that you've been to the heart of London, that you've got a sense of some of the things that have happened there through history, and an idea of some of the places that you could visit if you decide to include it on your tour of our capital city. So let's leave the city there and just signal that next week I'm intending to devote an episode to the Tower of London, that other great symbol of London and scene of so many important episodes from English and British history, many of them bloodthirsty. So I look forward to telling you all about that in the next episode, but for the moment would just like to thank you very much for your company today. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard and I hope, of course, that you'll be back next week to hear some more. Thank you. Goodbye.